kind of unlike any other falls that we've seen. Oh my gosh, it's the only waterfall where we've ever been inside of a cage looking at the waterfall and we were happy to be in a cage. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's, yeah, there is a, there is a cage at the very end, which is a little weird. There, there's no door that they shut on the cage. You voluntarily walk in, but, but it's this, you know, you're on this walkway suspended up in this narrow canyon and you've got the falls thundering. It's kind of a this like dark and mysterious and very cool thing to see. So don't miss that. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books, Today is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about the national parks, road trips, camping, hiking, gear, and pretty much what anyone wants to ask us. We're going to start today's episode celebrating the founding of the National Park Service more than 100 years ago. After that, we'll be answering questions about where the money collected from the America the Beautiful past purchases actually goes, and whether or not the park's Junior Ranger program is for adults. We'll also share our opinions on where to stay when visiting Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park, where to have your park photos printed, and what kind of games we play when we travel. You know, I need to read this outline ahead of time before we record. Are we really? Is that in this episode? You left out the word card, Matt. It's card games. Oh, card games. Got She's it. She's asking about card games. Okay, that's better. Yes. All this and more coming up next. All right, this week we are changing things up a bit. This mailbag episode is coming out on Friday instead of Thursday. And you know why, Matt? Because we didn't get the episode done in time. (laughs) (laughs) You're not supposed to say that. The reason reason we're telling people is because Friday, August 25th is the birthday or the anniversary, if you will, of the founding of the National Park Service. And we're going to have a party at our house with a big cake. (laughs) This is it right here, Matt. This is the party. Okay. Um, I was hoping there would be a cake. I know, but you hope that every week and there's never cake. Anyway, so Matt... Yes. It was August 25th, 1916, when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Organic Act, creating the National Park Service, which was a new federal bureau in the Department of the Interior. And that new federal bureau would be the one responsible for protecting the 35 national parks and monuments that had already been established as well as future sites. I know it's hard to believe that in 1916 There were already 35 national parks and monuments. It seems like a lot. They were cranking them out, weren't they? Mm -hmm, They were. Yeah. Wasn't John Muir somewhat responsible for the creation of the National Park Service, Karen? Well, he was. Before the creation of the NPS, each park was managed independently, and the rules and regulations depended on the whims of whoever happened to be in charge. But after the Hetch Hetchy Valley was dammed inside of Yosemite National Park, there was a huge outcry, and John Muir and the Sierra Club 
petitioned the government for stronger protections of national parks through the creation of one unified federal service. And Karen, did you know Stephen Mather was appointed the first head of the NPS? He introduced concession operations in the national parks so tourists could purchase food and other basic necessities. And Karen, he also promoted the creation of a highway system that would make national parks more accessible to automobiles. Right. It seems like right at that point, things got rolling. And the national park system grew from 35 units to currently 425 units in just over 100 years. Yeah, the national park system is still confusing to me. It's confusing to a lot of people. And... It's huge now. It is huge. 425 units. And there are 19 naming designations. So that's uh, what's confusing. Join join the confusing crowd. (laughs) Right. So we're just going to talk about a few of those. Of course, you know, a lot of you have heard the different designations. So there are national seashores and national lakeshores and national recreation areas and national historic sites. And we thought we would just mention a few the the biggest category, I shouldn't say the biggest category, the, the best known category would be, of course, the national parks. Yeah, and everyone uh, puts a lot of emphasis on that naming convention. If, if a unit of the National Park Service is a national park, national park, which is a little unfair to all the other units, there's 425 units, like we said. And if you talk to rangers or, or people in the NPS system, they treat all of the units the same. Like the national parks aren't more special than the national monuments or historical sites or seashores or or, or what have you, but they are a lot of times more diverse in what they have in it. And there are certain, you know, natural resources, ecological features that I guess the National Park Service feels like they're special enough to put the national park name on them. Now, currently, there are 63 national parks. Of course, you know, that that can change, and it has been changing steadily. But here's the thing. There is no one set criteria for what can become a national park. So typically, they're large, diverse areas that have outstanding natural features, and they tend to be among the most strictly protected park units in that Congress, historically, will not authorize activities that could damage the resources. And these include hunting, grazing, mining, logging, and off-road vehicle use. Generally, those are prohibited. But oftentimes, they tack on a national preserve next to the national park for all that stuff. Yeah, you could do all that (laughs) stuff over there in the preserve. Exactly. It's a confusing name. And as I said, there are no set guidelines, you know, for what can become a national park. So politicians tend to lobby for them in their states in order to bring economic development and tourism dollars to these gateway towns. And, you know, I think one of the most controversial recent national parks is uh, Gateway Arch in St. Louis. That's right. We get a lot of feedback uh, from people who question why is Gateway Arch a national park? Because it's, you know, it's a man-made structure. It's not that large. It, It doesn't have the same features that you would normally find in a national park. You know, these big, expansive, incredible natural resources. 
But, you know, again, it's it's up to Congress to decide right. what's a national park and what's not. So there you go. Yeah. Should there be some basic requirements for a site to become a national park? Should it be so many acres? And one thing I've always thought of, Matt, and I, do, I still don't understand this, I think that the park should have some development in that it should have roads for people to access it. I still don't understand why these remote parks in Alaska, like Gates of the Arctic and Kobuk Valley, are national parks when no one can access them unless you're dropped off in a small plane. Yeah, I agree with that. And it does seem like the the plan for each one of the parks is different. I'm not sure there's a overall game plan as to how to develop the infrastructure for all these national parks. There doesn't seem to be. It seems to be done on a case-by-case basis as far as the requirements to become a park and then what is going to be allowed in those parks. So let's talk for a second about, we had mentioned the national preserves. So there are 19 national preserves that are similar to national parks in their size and their natural features, but these allow uses like hunting or oil and gas exploration. And as we said, many preserves adjoin and share a name with a national park. Yeah, and maybe those units should be put into the USDA, like the National Forest, right? Because if if they're preserved there to utilize the resources on that land, like hunting or exploration of minerals, then that's that kind of feels more like what the national forests are. So right. why, why isn't it over there? Yeah, it's as confusing to us as it is to everyone else. <laughs> right. And then you have your national monuments. Now, national monuments can be established by Congress or proclaimed by the president under the Antiquities Act of 1906. Currently, there are around 130 national monuments. And I think one of the things we love so much about the national monuments is that there is such a wide variety of um, of what it is that the park is protecting. So we've been to Walnut Canyon and Wapatki National Monuments in Arizona, where you have the incredible archaeological ruins. And then we've been to Devil's Tower and Chiricahua, where you have these incredible landscapes. Yeah, like natural bridges. That's a, that's a cool one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And also national monuments are spread across lots of different agencies. They're not just in the national park system. They're Bureau of Land Management, National Monuments, also U.S. Forest Service and Fish and Wildlife. So the who gets the national monument is is also on a case-by-case basis. Right, and it's hard to know. In fact, a lot of people don't ever know when they're visiting a national monument who it's managed by because a lot of times there's still a visitor center and um, they, they can appear to be similar but managed by different federal agencies. Okay, so moving on, we just wanted to mention a few more. Now, you have your national recreation areas, and the National Park Service has 18 of those currently. And those are usually around bodies of water, like Lake Mead National Recreation Area. If you want to put your boat on it, it's usually a national recreation area. That's right. They have activities like boating, fishing, and sometimes they even have hunting. You know, again, it depends on the legislation that's established for that area. But, you know, it was originally, the designation was originally given to those areas that surround the Bureau of Reclamation reservoirs, so dams. 
Yeah, so they're not even natural uh, bodies of water. Right. Yeah. But again, we've been to a lot of national recreation areas. I mean, look at Glen Canyon, truly one of the most beautiful places we've been. Yeah, they're absolutely cool to visit, and we should probably look at the list of national recreation areas and visit some of the ones that, that we haven't seen. Other than the recreation that people are doing on the water, the boating and, and you know jet skiing and things like that, there's incredible lands attached to these areas that are great for hiking and, and exploring. Yes. Well, one example that's in our backyard is North Cascades National Park, which is surrounded by Lake Chelan National Recreation Area and Ross Lake National Recreation Area. And when we asked a ranger, I think on one of our very first visits, why is it divided up into all these areas? Why why isn't it all just North Cascades National Park? She told us it was because of the dams. And because of the dams, they had to have these national recreation areas. Olympic National Park had dams, but they took them down. Right. Yeah. That's true. All right. And one last thing we wanted to kind of talk about the difference between the National Historic Sites and the National Historical Parks, another very confusing designation. So historic means that that something of significance happened there, and historical just means it's old. Is that right? <laughs> well, the the difference as far as the naming of the parks, the National Historic Sites, like for instance, you have the Lincoln Home in Illinois, those contain a single historical feature, one thing. But the National Historical Parks, like like Chaco Culture National Historical Park in New Mexico, those have multiple stories from different times and usually extend beyond one building. Um, so that's kind of the difference between a single site and more of a park-like site. Got it. Makes total sense. Yeah. But so many great ones out there. As far as National Historic Sites, we loved Hubble Trading Post in Arizona and Fort Laramie in Wyoming, just to name a few. Yeah, you definitely want to, if it's available to you, to take ranger-led tours of those places because... Yeah, the, the structures and the places, they're, they're interesting by themselves, but once you start getting the, the backstories, and, and particularly if, if you're getting that from a ranger who, who has that, that information, and a lot of them are really great storytellers, it then brings the, the place to life. Absolutely. And also, a lot of times when you're with the ranger on these tours, you can access parts of the park that you wouldn't be able to access on your own. So all that being said, we have mentioned before that when we set off to visit all the national parks, we had blinders on and we only saw the national parks. And of course, after that, we were kicking ourselves because on a lot of these trips, we missed other national park sites that were practically next door that were very cool and that, you know, now will take us a long time to go back and see them. But we're catching up now. We're going back to a lot of those places. We are. So our best advice is when you go visit a national park, check out all of the rest of the sites in that area. For instance, you can Google national park sites in Arizona. An entire list will come up of everything, all these different 19 designations. So you can, you can see where you're going and what other cool places are around it. How can you tell if the rangers and the employees are period actors also? I, I like it when period actors. <laughs> when they do reenactments? Well, when they just are, are 
told that they have to stay in character no matter what. <laughs> which is fun. Because you try to trick them. I try to trick them. Yes. <laughs> you asked a ranger, and where was that fort? Um, what fort were we in? Ben- Bent's oh, Fort. Bent's Old Fort. There was someone, you know, dressed up in period costume, and you asked him where the closest gas station was. Yeah, they they were very practiced at not getting out of character, but I think I got them. <laughs> oh, man. And that, I think, totally made your day. Yes. <laughs> okay, so recently there was a big announcement. A new national monument in Arizona was created. Matt, do you want to tell everyone the name of the of the new national monument? You mean the Bajinavajo Itakuveni? <laughs> you know that wasn't half bad. <laughs> oh yeah, which half which half was good and which half was um, I bad? Think the first... Let's, okay, <laughs> let's hear you say it. Okay, Bajinavajo Jo Itakuveni. Grand Canyon National Monument. How how did that sound? Well, you took a couple whacks at it. <laughs> I only took one whack at it. I didn't That's know we true. had mul- multiple tries. <laughs> now, this name is a mixture of the traditional Havasupai and Hopi languages. So that first part, the Baj Nawave Joe, that part means where the tribes roam. And then the second part of it, the Itakukvene, means... Our footprints for the Hopi tribe. I'm going to call it the Grand Canyon National Monument. Okay. Yeah. You know, however, there is a different Grand Canyon National Monument. It's actually called Grand Canyon Parashant National Monument. Well, that's not confusing at all. They have two of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> now, this new national monument conserves almost one million acres of the greater Grand Canyon landscape that's sacred to the tribal nations and indigenous people. And it's it's made up of three distinct and separate areas, the south, the northeast, and the northwest. You know what's interesting about this, Matt? Well, there's a lot <laughs> the of name, interesting... Oh, I'm still trying to <laughs> figure out how to say it. <laughs> I don't know what. So this national monument includes a provision that's not often seen. It will be co-managed with the 13 tribe coalition that advocated for its creation. So that's very cool. So you're going to have 13 tribes co-manage it. Right, with the yeah. NPS. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of the many reasons for uh, making this land a national monument was to protect the land from uranium mining and contamination. I guess I didn't know this, but the new monument contains over 3,000 cultural and historic sites. So, you know, an incredible area absolutely deserves and needs to be protected. Why didn't we know about this before? I didn't know that this land existed that has 3,000 known cultural and historic sites? Yeah, I think it was part of the Forest Service. And now it's part of the NPS to give it some added protection. What are some things visitors can do in this new monument? Well, apparently, they can do all the same things they were doing before when it was managed by the Forest Service, like hiking, hunting, fishing, biking, horseback riding, backpacking, scenic driving, and wildlife viewing. So it sounds like we need to get ourselves over to this new national monument. And do all those things. And, and do all those things. Horseback ride yeah. and do the scenic drive. Mm, looks like we've been missing out. It just has a new name. And new protection. And new protection. Yes. Okay, is, isn't this supposed to be a mailbag episode? I, I don't see a mail. <laughs> I don't see a bag. I haven't heard a question yet. 
You're right. You're right. Yes. Let's get started on mailbag. Our first question is from Sandy in Richmond, Virginia, and she wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, when I buy my annual America the Beautiful Pass, I usually buy it in whatever park I happen to go to next after it expires. But I'm wondering if the $80 fee stays within the park where I purchase it. If so, I'm going to make an effort to buy it at Shenandoah every year so I can support my local national park. That is a very good question. Thank you, Sandy. And yes, 80% of admission fees, including all the passes, stay within that particular park. And then the other 20% goes to the parks that don't charge a fee. Right. And that's a big source of funding for the parks. Yeah. And there are, of these park service units, 109 of them charge a fee. And they can range anywhere from, well, 10 bucks to $35 per vehicle. And, you know, we have been to parks where because of staffing shortages, there's no one there to take the fees. We were, uh, we were at Crater Lake last month. And last October, we were in Arches and both of those parks, busy parks, popular parks, the entrance kiosks were empty, the gate was open, and people just flowed in. And when you think about, you know, if they are charging $35 a vehicle, when you're thinking about the revenue that they are losing because of that, it really is shocking. You would think that the, the revenue alone would pay for the rangers to staff the entrance kiosks. You're making more money by collecting fees than it costs to pay the salaries and benefits of those individuals. So I would think that that would be a way to increase staff that funds itself. It also begs the question, why does it even need to be a ranger? Why couldn't it just be a body there collecting the money, you hand them the park map, you hand them the newsletter, you take their money. And if they have questions and issues, they go to the visitor center and then ask a ranger. I understand that there are staffing shortages and it's hard to find workers these days, but boy, it is a shame that they are losing that really important revenue. I would take the entrance fees. You would be good at that. that. (laughs) Yeah. Now, we have noticed a lot of times when we're in line is that people think that the entrance kiosk is the visitor center. Right. Right. And they're asking a lot of Mm -hmm. questions like, where are the animals? I'm pretty sure that we get behind people who are exchanging recipes (laughs) with the rangers because that's the only explanation for why they're at the kiosk for so long. I'd move them along. You would keep things moving. You oh, yeah. would. You would be like next, you yeah. know. Yes. I think I think maybe that's a possible career choice for you. I'd like to drive one of those big cruisers. If I did a good job and collected enough fees, they might promote me to law enforcement. I think you actually have to go to Washington DC for that. I can I can do that. <laughs> All right. Now, what's kind of interesting to me is that not every national park you know, the designation national park, not everyone charges an entrance fee, which I don't know why that is. But there are national monuments and national seashores and national historic sites, etc. that charge fees. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe I don't know why that lo- is. Low self-esteem. They, <laughs> they don't feel like it's worth an entrance fee. They, they should, they should Definitely charge an entrance fee. Yes, I agree. The National Park Service has a list of all their parks that charge a fee. And I just thought it was interesting to look at. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes. All right. Thanks for the question, Sandy. 
What's up next, Karen? Let's answer a question from Kim in Ohio, who is on a quest to visit the national parks. She wrote, I have visited 52 national parks, but have I? Last summer, I took a float plane to Katmai. We went to the preserve and hiked in the Moraine Creek with the grizzlies and salmon. Besides giving birth, this was the most exciting day of my life. But my question is, was I in the national park? Is being in the preserve section enough? The next one, years ago, I stopped at Wind Cave, but I couldn't get a cave tour. Recently, I had reservations for Wind Cave, but today they were canceled due to elevator repairs. If I do a hike there, will this count since it's not in the spirit of the park? And lastly, I went to New River Gorge as a child, but I don't have any memory of it. Does this count? I am asking in jest because I'm counting Katmai and Wind Cave, reluctantly, but not counting New River Gorge. I just want to know your opinion. Our opinion. Uh, (laughs) If you set foot in the park, you visited it, no matter when. So okay, so, I disagree. So not Katmai. <laughs> yes, Wind Cave. Yes, New River Gorge. Okay, that's interesting. There you go. You got to go back to Katmai. That's interesting because I would say yes to Katmai, yes to Wind Cave, and no to New River Gorge because if you don't have a memory of it, oh, you don't have a memory of it. She doesn't have a memory. Oh, she doesn't of have it a memory of it. She was a kid. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you. No, it totally counts. Well. Yeah. Where I draw the line is my mom was pregnant with me when we went to Rocky Mountain (laughs) National Park. That does not count. No. Yeah. You know, it's such a gray area, right? And we are. It's not gray at all. No. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. So we went to Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. Um, Gosh, I think it was 2013. And this was years before they designated a national park. But we're counting that one. We're counting it. I would say, Kim, sure, I think being in the National Preserve of Katmai, when you're seeing the grizzlies and the salmon, I would think that would count. You think? Yeah. If you look at all the NPS sites that are managed together, like when visitors go to Redwood National Park and there are state parks sprinkled throughout, you know, someone might visit Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park or Prairie Creek Redwood State Park, and that counts as a visit to Redwood National Park, right? No, if a park is sprinkled, it does not count. <laughs> okay, you're missing the point here. What I'm like saying is... Like if you got is... a cupcake and all it had on it was sprinkles, like no frosting, right, you're would st- it count? You're still on the cake thing. What I'm saying is Kim doesn't necessarily have to go to the national park part of Katmai. I think the preserve counts. That's all I'm saying. Is... We, don't, we don't even know if her name really is Kim. <laughs> we get a question. I think we get a question every day from Kim in Ohio. Is it the same Kim in Ohio? No. Oh, there are lots of Kims in Ohio who are tuning in. But I guess the thing is, even if there were an authority on this and, and somebody could tell you for sure, yes or no, I think the thing is the experience, of course, is a lot more important than having the stamp in your passport. So for New River Gorge, you know, of course you want to go back and, you know, maybe do the bridge walk and do the hiking and, and have a memory of New River Gorge. Uh, and, you know, hopefully you will also get to go back to Wind Cave and see the cave. Yeah. So it gives you a reason to go back. Exactly. Kim from Ohio. But I'm with you, Kim. I'd count Katmai and Wind Cave and not count New River Gorge. That's just my two cents. Okay, so I guess I'm outnumbered here. (laughs) 
What's our next question, Karen? All right. This one is from Julie in Lincoln, Nebraska, and she wrote, could you please explain what the Junior Ranger Program is? I've seen kids taking part in various park visitor centers, but someone told me that adults can do it too. If so, Karen, does that mean you could get a badge to wear while you're an off-duty ranger? (laughs) You could. You could get your on-duty Junior Ranger badge while you're an off-duty Imaginary Ranger. (laughs) Yes, it is for adults too, Julie. And I didn't realize this until, and I didn't know that you kind of get an official looking badge until last July. We were in Crater Lake with our family and our oldest granddaughter is eight years old and she did the Junior Ranger program. This was her first time, our first time in actually seeing it. And I got to tell you, when she took that pledge in front of the ranger, you know, she held up her right hand and and she promised to protect the parks. I got all choked up. You did get choked up. And, and apparently now, just, just as you're talking about it. <laughs> Here's my question. When you pledge to protect the park, are you pledging to protect all the parks? Because at Crater Lake, they talk about protecting Crater Lake National Park. So do you have to, I'm just adding on to the question, do you have to then be a junior ranger at every single park? Yes, that's the point of the junior ranger program because the activity books that you get, so we're not doing a good job. We should start at the beginning. (laughs) How it works is this. The child or adult gets an activity book that's specific to that park. So sometimes you have to pick it up at the visitor center. Sometimes if you look at the website, you can download it and print it at home. But it's an activity book that helps the person learn about the park. Then when you show up at the park, you show them your activity book, you take the pledge, and they give you this very realistic-looking badge. I was kind of curious as to why you didn't Get your Junior Ranger badge at Crater Lake. You know, in hindsight, having seen the whole thing, I wish I would have. I And I think we should do that moving forward. But I think every national park has a Junior Ranger program. And here's the thing. I mean, all joking aside, we have all, all of us who have been to the national parks, we've seen a lot of bad behavior recently, right? Irresponsible behavior, the trashing of the parks behavior. So when you have a program like this, where you are teaching children to value and love and protect the parks, I feel like it's educating the next round of park visitors. Yeah, so so they can shame the other park visitors who are throwing their trash in, in the forest and stuff like that. Exactly. Leaving dog poop on the side of the trail. Right. So we would encourage all of you parents and grandparents out there who are taking your kids to the parks, get them involved in the Junior Ranger program. You know, I think it says it's for ages from five to 13, but that's just a general guideline. And we've seen kids younger than that. And obviously, as we said, it's for adults too. So it's a fantastic program. Yeah, we would encourage everyone of all ages to, to get their Junior Ranger badges. I will stand in the back and photograph your swearing-in ceremony. You don't want to do it with me? No. (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) 
I will wear it proudly around the park and I'm gonna give- get you a vest. <laughs> A vest to put all of them on. Yeah, because the I think the bags has the name of the park on it. If I remember, it does. our yes. mm-hmm. granddaughter's bags has Crater Lake on it. Yeah, yeah. You were curious about this age requirement thing, and the other day when we were in Mount Rainier National Park, you asked Ranger, "Is there an age limit to the Junior Ranger program?" <laughs> and the Rangers just like, "Yeah, no, there's no limit." Like. Silly question. Right, right. Well, I was more worried about younger kids younger than five, because obviously to fill out the activity books, you have to, you know, be able to either read or, I mean, it does take a little bit of maybe some schooling, but apparently any any child, three, four, five, 85, <laughs> get those Junior Ranger badges. As long as they can hold up the right hand and repeat the pledge. Exactly. Repeat the pledge to protect the parks. Okay, so uh, there you go. Thank you for that question, Julie. cleared that up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this next question comes from Roy in Grand Rapids. And he wrote, we will be visiting Black Canyon of the Gunnison at the end of September, and we're wondering if you could recommend a hotel in the area. Yeah, the the closest town is Montrose. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where we stayed. Uh, there are several chain hotels there, like Hampton Inn and Holiday Inn and Days Inn. Those those types. Yeah, we stayed at the Hampton Inn there on our first visit, and it was perfectly fine. Very convenient to the park. However, if you want something a little more charming, we have another option to throw out. Now, this kind of depends on where you're heading after you visit Black Canyon, but we would suggest going to Uray, which is about an hour's drive to the south. And this is what we did on our second visit, and we were just blown away by how cute this town was. Yeah, I think you called it Darling. It was. It got the Darling designation. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little mountain town. It it isn't that far from the park. It's definitely worth the hour drive to stay in Uray. It is. Now, it has um, it has a lot of hotel options. These are non-chain hotels. It has a good brewery. It has this great trail that runs around the perimeter of the town up, you know, a little higher in elevation. So you're looking down on the town. And don't miss, if you do this perimeter trail, one of the coolest things that we saw, and it was such a surprise, was that Box Canyon Falls. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, we mm-hmm. hiked up there, and then from that, we caught the perimeter trail and yes. did, did a part of that. We didn't do the whole 360 trail, but yeah, that was, that was a nice day. It was a good day for it, and it was cool seeing Box Canyon Falls, kind of unlike any other falls that we've seen. Oh my gosh, it's the only waterfall where we've ever been inside of a cage looking at the waterfall, and we were happy to be in a cage. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's... <laughs> Yeah, there is a, there is a cage at the very end, which is a little weird. There, there's no door that they shut on the cage. You voluntarily walk in, but but it's this you know you're on this walkway suspended up in this narrow canyon, and you've got the falls thundering. It's kind of a this like dark and mysterious and very cool thing to see. So don't miss that. But um, here's the thing: there is a ton of great hiking trails in that area. There's also, I think we talked about this on our scenic drives, there's also the Million Dollar Highway, which um, is just south of Uray. I like that drive. It's, it was very scenic. Some people think it's treacherous. I, I didn't think it was treacherous 
at all. I mean, you do have to pay attention. They do keep it plowed in the winter. Uh, So yeah, if there's snow and ice on the road, be be super careful. But it's about 25 miles long running from Uray to Silverton. Mm -hmm. Beautiful scenery, mountain drive, one of the most scenic drives we've ever been on. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. And this is a great way to go if you want to visit Durango or we went this way because we were visiting Mesa Verde. And so this was a great way to get there. We only stayed overnight, one night in Ure. And we need to go back because like I said, there are so many great hiking trails in the area. There's a lot to do. So if you have the time and you're a hiker, maybe add on an extra day in Ure and also head down to some of these other great sites if that fits into your schedule. We recommend Ure often to people and every single time that somebody has visited that area, based on our suggestion, they all say it was it was fantastic. Yeah, so Montrose is closest, but Ure is about an hour away from Black Canyon of the Gunnison. That's right. All right, Karen, do we have any more questions? Yes, we do. You know, we have two questions that came in that were almost exactly the same. One was from Terry and one was from Carrie. Terry and Carrie. Are we going to give the same answer to the same question? We are going to give the same um, answer. So the question was, what are you doing with all of your beautiful photos? Do you ever create photo books or print them out for your walls or just keep them on your devices? I'm curious as to your process. Travel photos are my favorite and yours are always so beautiful. It would be hard to pick just a favorite few to print. And Terry also adds, I used to print mine through Costco, but that's no longer an option. Could you please let everyone know where you have your photos printed? Yeah. Well, we don't we don't do a lot of printing. We do some, and we'll talk about that. But with regard to your question about Costco, even though they've shut down their photo printing, they've now partnered with Shutterfly. And so you can shop for prints there. You can uh, you know upload your files and then create prints, photo books. And I think that Costco members get a discount on the Shutterfly products. Yeah, I read that they get a discount of 51% and free shipping on orders over $49 on Shutterfly. Now, we do not have any affiliation with Shutterfly. However, I will say we have used this company in the past. I've had our Christmas card photos made there. And what we used to do, or I should say our kids used to do, when we would do a big trip with them, they would create photo books when we got back with all of the photos from that trip. And then they would give them to to Matt and I as a thank you gift. And I have to say, those are priceless now to look back on because they're full of a lot of great memories, a lot of funny photos. And so that's one way that you can preserve your park trip photos is by making those photo books. Yeah, it's nice to pull those out. And of course, you know, the books are sitting on your shelves with with the photos in the book. So they're nice and preserved. Exactly. And the other thing that we have seen people do recently is they make a photo wall, especially, you know, people who are going to all the parks. So they'll choose their best photo from a particular park you know, have it printed and framed, and then they do an entire wall. And it's beautiful. And it's such a great thing to do. But Carrie, as you pointed out, it's hard to choose a favorite from an entire, you know, national park trip. Yeah, I like the photo book idea. And you can add captions to the photos if you want to. 
Right. And I was looking at the photo books on Shutterfly. There are a lot of options. You can get a small square like eight by eight, which is inexpensive. You can get a really big, nice photo book. So depending on how much you want to spend, who it's for, makes a great gift. The other thing they have now is, gosh, Matt, they have home decor that you can have your photos printed on. And they have everything. They have pillows and blankets and magnets and coffee mugs. And I mean, you name it and they can print your photo on it. Now I know what to get you for Christmas. Gifts with my face all over them. (laughs) I can't imagine anything better, really. (laughs) Nor can I. (laughs) So that is our answer. Shutterfly, we think, makes a great product. I'm sure there are other photo printing companies out there that are equally good as well. Yes, we've used Just Go Travel Studios to do posters. Now, they they take your photo and they have the ability to put wording on it. So they have designs. So you could put, you know, Grand Canyon National Park. And they advertised on our podcast uh, before. Great people, fantastic customer service. So we've used them. And they do a great job. Yes. Now, this is a little different in that it's a big poster. And the price might prohibit people from doing, you know, 63 national parks that way. But again, the product is fantastic. The people are great. So we would recommend Just Go Travel Studios. Also, if you want to get a poster, makes a great gift as well. So there you go. Okay. Thank you for those questions. All right, Karen, uh, I think we have one more question. Yes. Our last one is from Jill, and we have actually never gotten this question before. (laughs) She wrote, I was wondering which card games are your favorite for playing in the evenings while on adventures? You mentioned cards frequently on your travels in both your books and your podcast. Okay, Karen. We Yes, we play cards. Sometimes it's just you and I. More often, we play cards when we're with another couple. Right. We tend to, when it's just Matt and I, we tend to work. (laughs) Unfortunately, when we have downtime, there's always, seems like there's always some work that needs to be done. But when we're with friends, we play cards and we play a couple of different games. One is called Euchre and it's spelled E-U-C-H-R-E. Yes, that's, that's kind of our favorite game to play with couples because it's competitive (laughs) <laughs> and it's, a, you know, it's team play. There's a lot of rules that not everyone adheres to. So it's uh, you, you do have to keep track of your competitors, making sure that they don't violate the rules, try to steal the deals, table talk. Table talk's a big issue. So if you've never played Euchre, you do have to play with a partner and you play against another pair of partners. So you do need four people. Now we've heard that some people host Euchre parties where they have multiple tables set up and invite a lot of people and then you rotate from table to table um, and play with different partners. And you keep track of your wins so you can determine at the end of the event who has the most wins because it's all about winning and this is where the problem lies is that some of us are very competitive and some of us just don't really care (laughs) you seem to not care when you lose but you seem to care more when you win. Well, that's true. Who, who doesn't want to win? But it's interesting because it seems like a lot of the people that we're friends with who are from the Midwest, it seems like a popular game in the Midwest. But Matt, did you know it actually came over from Europe? 
Karen. <laughs> only you would shoehorn a History Channel segment in the answer to a, a question about what card games do we play? I know, I know. And I wish it would be a longer History Channel. I kept looking at different websites. I couldn't find that much. The only thing I could find is it's one of the world's oldest card games. It dates back to the 18th century, and it was called Yuckerspiel. Um, that's the name. Which oh, Yuckerspiel. It- yeah, I, <laughs> I remember playing Yuckerspiel w- with my family when I was a kid before I met you. We played a lot of Yuckerspiel. <laughs> it was the family... Yuckerspiel <laughs> champion for three years running. I did. Did you, did you know that? I should. Have, I did not know I, that. I should have mentioned that when we were dating. That probably would have closed the deal faster. It probably would have. Anyway, so it was very popular in Europe. It made its way into North America during the 19th century by German immigrants. So there you go. Anyway, it's a fun game. And, you know, so far we have managed to stay friends with all of the people we've played it with. <laughs> well, we rotate partners. Sometimes you and I are partners. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're, we're actually a pretty good team. Formidable. Formidable. We're, we're a formidable team. We are yeah. for sure. Uh, now, the other game we play is Gin Rummy and Rummy. We were kind of confused about the name, like which which name do you call it? But then I found out for, for certain, Matt, that gin rummy is for two people. So when you and I play, it's gin rummy. And rummy is for more than two people. So there you go. You like looking up rules and telling people the rules. <laughs> I do. And enforcing the rules, don't you? Yeah. Yes. Would it make a difference if, if I get the little junior <laughs> ranger badge and I wear that? Would, would I be more authoritative? <laughs> I'm going to get you a vest. Where you can put all of your junior ranger bags on. Yes, you should wear that because that would just give us one more thing to make fun of while you're playing. Uh, Okay, Jill, one more game that we wanted to mention. Now, this is not a card game. It's actually a game that you play with dominoes. It's called Mexican Train. This is a fun group game. Now, this is the type of game where we would take this, you know, it comes in a box. We would take this on a road trip where we have room and we've done it like when we're staying in a cabin. It takes a while to play Mexican Train. Yeah, you you need plenty of space, plenty of time. It's best if it's snowing outside, people can't get away. Right. Yeah. My only problem with Mexican Train is, you know, there's a lot of handling of the dominoes. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of food and drink and germs that I, I... I think the dominoes should be cleaned after every Mexican train tournament. I'm surprised you don't do that. I did it once. Oh, and you it did. took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just have the hand sanitizer on the table and you should be good. Well, you need wipes is really to, yeah. to get those dominoes clean. But yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. It is. And again, this is a this comes in a boxed set called Mexican train. This isn't something that you would just do with your own dominoes, just to be clear. <laughs> you on that. Can't, you're, you're not allowed to do this with your own dominoes well no because you need the little plastic um, little little trains yeah you need the little trains and stuff there it comes with some little um tchotchke things that you need yeah and the dominoes go up to 16 right they are special dominoes yeah so there's Mm -hmm. there's extra dominoes yeah Yeah, so mexican trains a lot of fun the other thing we have played in the last couple years is five crowns this is also a game that's just it's its own deck Right. It actually has five suits, mm-hmm. uh, and there's two decks of it. It sounds, when you're explaining it to new players, and it sounds really complicated, 
But then once you start playing it, you realize it's not complicated at all. So five crowns is a lot of fun too. That is a lot of fun. You can buy that a lot of places on Amazon, and that is that's more portable than the uh, Mexican train game. So you know you could throw that in your luggage too. Yeah, it's been fun to play um, games like that with our friends. I think it just adds an extra element to to traveling in the evenings when you're just sitting around. Because usually, of course, as we've said, you don't have. Uh, you don't have TVs and you don't have internet, so so you make your own fun. You make your own fun, old-fashioned way. It, it, it also helps you decide who the winners are and who the losers are. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. That's a bonus there. That's right. All, All right. right. Thanks for the great question, Jill. All right, that wraps it up for mailbag today. Thanks so much for joining us. We are taking next Thursday off so we can work ahead on some September episodes that will come out while we're on a long road trip, the uh, destination of which is still up in the air. Yeah, we're being spontaneous on this one due to the wildfires and smoky areas in the West. That seems to change day by day. We have a couple of itineraries that will make a final decision on Labor Day weekend. That's right. So if you'd like to see where we're heading and what we're doing, be sure to follow us on Instagram and check out our stories. We'll be posting there throughout the trip. And you can find our Instagram account at Matt and Karen Smith. And now I need to go see about that cake. If I order one, do you think they'd put a NPS arrowhead on it and maybe a little bison at the bottom? It's <laughs> great.